This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Slate's Audio Book Club is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a new video learning service with more than 5,000 lectures. As a member of The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere, on any device. Sign up for a free one-month trial by visiting thegreatcoursesplus.com abc. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com abc. And by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of December. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's Words Correspondent, and I'm joined today by Slate Books and Culture columnist Laura Miller. Hey, Laura. Hi. And from New Haven, we have New York Times Magazine writer and political gabfester Emily Bazelon. Hey, Emily. Hey, guys. On the agenda today is Lauren Groff's novel, Fates and Furies, and the normal caution about spoilers applies. So if you don't want certain plot twists and character revelations spoiled, please read Fates and Furies and then come back when you're done. All right, so this is normally where I go into a long spiel summarizing the novel, but I was actually wondering if you guys wanted to help me out. Um, Fates and Furies, it has kind of a high concept, a bifurcated structure. It's about a marriage, and the first half is about the husband, and the second half is about the wife. Um, do, does one of you want to jump in and sort of flesh out that summary? Well, I could I could jump in a little bit here. It's helpful to know that Lauren Groff originally thought of writing this novel as two separate small books. So the idea that they necessarily have a whole lot to say to each other is sort of an interesting question. Maybe she meant them to be read together. Maybe she meant them to be read in any order. Or maybe ultimately she decided that they needed to go together, although she said that it was really almost more of a publishing decision than a sort of authorial decision that the two different narratives would be in the same book. But it's interesting to point out that Ali Smith, the British writer, tried a similar concept with it. It was two narratives from two different people's point of view. 
and we it was talked about book. that book on the book yeah. club. How to right. be both, right? How to be both, yep. and and you could get it in one order or another, which made me wonder what this book would be like. I mean, I think we all sort of assume first we get this one version of the marriage from the husband's point of view, and then we get the wife's point of view. The sort of assumption because of that order is that the wife's point of view is the accurate one, right? Because we get it. It's revealed in the course of the narrative. The things that happen later in the narrative we think of as being more true than the things that happen in the beginning. But maybe it didn't necessarily have to be that way. I thought of Mathilde, the wife's narrative, as the kind of anti-story rather than necessarily more accurate. It's a much darker vision of this relationship and of life, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the photo negative. And I wonder if we can sort of draw out the differences between the two. So Lotto, Lancelot is this kind of blessed son of fortune who is born to a wealthy Florida family and seems to kind of skate through life, marries the beautiful woman and achieves success as a playwright. Although there's kind of this darker side to him as well, he suffers with depression. and We should probably talk about what that thread was doing in his story. But then midway through, the novel changes. It goes to Mathilde. If he's the child of destiny, she is a daughter of fierce will, and she makes things happen for herself. And everything that seems effortless for Lotto is shown to be part of her machinations. And yeah, I think it is an open question if these are two competing visions of the world, which one the author sort of subscribes to and whether one is supposed to be sort of a corrective to the other or whether there's like an argument that we're supposed to draw from it. I I wasn't sure whether Lauren Groff actually had an argument that she was advancing with these two narratives. The writer Laura Lipman told me that she thinks that the first section of the book is what Mathilde thinks Lotto thinks his mm. life was like. So all of it is really Matilde's narrative, but but the first half that we get is is her idea of what was going on in his head. I don't think there's so much evidence in the book for that, right? Because if there's an omniscient narrator here, it's these the voice of what felt to me like a Greek chorus in brackets throughout the book. There is an omniscient we. And in the very beginning, the way the we talks about Matilda and Lotto is um, about focusing on Lotto first. The words in brackets say about Lotto, for now, he's the one we can't look away from. He is the shining one. I mean, I suppose that could also be Matilda's point of view, but I, there's nothing explicit that makes that case, right? It's an interesting theory. I don't, I tend to agree with you that the those little bracketed asides, which I also have my own theory about, tend to suggest that the other Laura's theory is not that well supported. But it's it's interesting that the book can be interpreted that way by someone who's obviously a very intelligent reader. Let's talk about those bracketed voices because I'm not sure, did you guys get the sense that they were definitely female? And I'm not even sure what it means to say that, but there was a strong personality to them, and it was sort of shrewd, and I'm not sure it, it seemed very female to me. Did you guys get that impression? Well, my assumption is that in the first section of the book, the bracketed commenters are the fates, mm-hmm. who are female. Right. And in the second section of the book, the bracketed commentaries 
come from the Furies, who are also female. So I did think that they were female. To me, they they sort of represent the different ways that the two characters see the forces that determine their their lives. Yeah, that's I love that theory, and I I prefer that theory even to the one of the Greek chorus. But I wonder whether that's why we tend to see Matilde's narrative as a corrective to Lotto's, because the sort of governing sensibility or force or spirit of both sections is this more sort of feminine. Oh, good point. Yeah. Feminine spirit. Laura, can you remind me who the fates are versus the Furies and why those would have two different kinds of voices? Yeah, I see that Lotto sees his life as as sort of determined by luck, specifically good luck, but sometimes also bad luck. For instance, the bad luck that causes his death. And the fates... In Greek mythology, there's a spinner. She spins out a length of string or yarn or mm-hmm. whatever, basic, basically string. There's a measurer who decides how long it's going to be, and there's a cutter. When she cuts the strand of string, that's the end of the person's life. And there is a, an actual bracketed interjection where the person talks about the voice, voice says, talk about measuring out a string. And that's in the first section of the book. And then the Furies are goddesses of vengeance. They make you pay for what you did. I mean, they're not just goddesses of vengeance. They are the instruments of vengeance. Well, that definitely works for the second half of the book. <laughs> did you? Did either, of, did either of you feel like you were reading not just two different points of view, but two different genres? Oh, yes. Uh, actually, okay. I felt like Good. there was one genre in the first half of the book and then a mashup, a crazy, hectic mashup of other genres in the second half. Absolutely. Yeah. That is well put. It's crazy everything that happens to Mathilde. In When I was reading the book for review, you know, underlining and writing comments, at a certain point, my whole professionalism broke down to the point where she's the mistress of this sort of weird older man who's making her do all these degrading sexual things. And in the margins, I wrote, what next? You know, <laughs> oh my like, God, right. what it was more like lemony snicket. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it was. It was. And I had a lot of trouble with that, actually, because the first half of the book wasn't entirely realist fiction. There's a um, romanticization and a weird gauziness to Lotto's upbringing. I could not mm. place either of his parents as like real human beings on this planet. Right. But it was mostly realist or it certainly had enough realism to keep me in the world for the most part. And then the second half of the book, I was like, I am reading a fable or a detective story. At moments, I felt like I was reading Gone Girl. <laughs> yeah. Very confusing. I love the lemony snicket comparison. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that was interesting to me is there was a shift in sort of subject matter content from realist to unrealistic. But the language the entire time was this kind of otherworldly lyrical entity. And so it always felt kind of remote to me. So I was not expecting realism even when I was in the lotto section. And it seems like there was almost a better matchup between the pull of the language and the pull of the plot in the second half. Hmm. That's interesting. interesting. Well, I mean, there is a a romanticization all around Lotto, both by him and everyone who knows him. It's this kind of little, like, F. Scott Fitzgerald glow Mm. to him. And, And 
and it goes with the idea that he is somehow chosen by fate to have this especially golden existence. And there is a kind of a fairy tale element to that. Yes, I agree. And then maybe we should talk a little bit of plot here. So we see him grow up in Florida. He becomes friends with the kind of... uh, loner misfit guy named Charlie and his sister Gwen. Um, he has sex with Gwen. Then his mom, Lotto's mom, finds out about that, carts him off to boarding school in the Northeast. And then Lotto goes to college and he meets Matilde and they fall madly in love very quickly and get married and move to New York. And Lotto is supposed to be an actor. And in the meantime, he basically never goes home again. He never he talks to his mother on the phone. He sees his aunt and he has a younger sister, but he's completely cut off from his mother and his father has died. So he has sort of self-orphaned himself. Doesn't she say that he can come back if he renounces Matilde? I mean, the, yes, the mother is trying very... to get him to come back. Yeah. Well, right. But she sets this kind of, you know, 19th century right. condition, which seemed completely implausible that a mother would really refuse to see her son for years and years because she decided she didn't like the girl he'd married even though she'd never met this girl anyway eventually when Lotto has professional success it's as a playwright and it is very magical he spends one night kind of furiously composing a work which Matilde then secretly or quietly edits and suddenly he's launched into this path of enormous success in the dramatic world and that all makes him seem like he's uh, you know the kind of uh, Fitzgerald hero you're talking about Laura Yeah, speaking of Fitzgerald Hero, because I'm not sure how much we're supposed to like Gatsby, did you guys like Lotto? I mean, he does have this sort of narcissism and a sort of, well, a shallowness, I guess. Um, But he also has this tremendous capacity to see the good in people and to want to give affection as well as receive it. And I just wonder, is is he Lancelot the knight or is he a more complicated hero than that? Lancelot is pretty complicated. He's very tragic, and he doesn't actually wind up married. I was a little confused about these sort of chivalric medieval romance citations because Lancelot is in love with another man's wife. They never really get to be together for any great period of time. The woman who has the name that's closest to the woman that Lancelot loves is the sister of Charlie Mm -hmm. who kills herself while he's... Uh, way in boarding school. And so I, I remember just being, I was thinking, why does he have this name? If his name was Galahad, or he would be maybe one of the more idealized knights in of the round table. But Lancelot is the knight. The actual character is not really that much of a golden boy. I sort of read that as a very simple you know, evoking the flower of Camelot. And you're right, probably Galahad would have been a more... Who would call their kid Galahad? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. In this book, the dad's name is Gawain. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I agree with you, Katie, but I just kept thinking, then why was that girl's name Gwen, you know? Like, I felt like if if she doesn't want us to think any more than beyond the sort of kind of cliche association with Lancelot, not as a character, but as a sort of like the word that we use for the sort of perfect knight in shining armor. Why does she name this character who dies so early Gwen? 
Should we talk about who Gwen is and what happens with her? Well, she's kind of nowhere for a long time. She disappears, and then she turns out to have had tremendous significance at the end of the book in a way that I was nonplussed by and not in yeah. a good way. <laughs> yeah. As you mentioned, Emily, she sleeps with Lancelot and... Um, they are actually, they're in a house party and the house catches on fire and they just make it out in time into the waiting yeah, arms of the firefighters. Yeah, he has to roll off the roof with his <laughs> penis not quite back in his pants, right? Come on, yeah. you got to tell the whole story there. Sorry, I didn't mean to That's deprive okay. listeners of the details, the juicy details. <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out that Gwen actually conceives Lancelot's child and this is buried for most of the book and then the son reemerges in material life and they sleep together. This is after Lancelot We should died. say she does not know this yes. is Lotto's <laughs> yeah. child when she does this. Although somehow she has the dawning realization later, also for unexplained reasons. Well, this is, I thought, <laughs> like a allusion to Oedipus or something. And it, there were so many different allusions working against each other. I actually found that kind of confusing. I wish she had picked one sort of guiding mythology and really explored it. I don't know. I did read some reviews saying that the profusion and the abundance of all these antecedents made the book richer and more resonant and the reviewer liked it, but I'm not sure. But it's also kind of incoherent, like the use of the name Gwen that Laura was just pointing to, right? It doesn't all, the mythology doesn't quite line up, I don't, or it doesn't at all line up. It's a mishmash. At first I was bewildered by that and tried to think what the significance was. And eventually I just came to think this is there so that people can recognize it and realize that it's an illusion and think about how smart they are for recognizing it mm-hmm. which is not so good yeah i don't i don't i don't feel good about the way that the those uh, many of those illusions were used because it didn't feel like they had any deep resonance with what was going on in the story unlike the whole sort of fates and furies concept which i did think really structured the novel there really isn't anything about lotto that is that meaningfully like Lancelot like he's not even really like a a knight in shining armor even and Antigone shows up in an important way later in the book he's co-writing an opera about Antigone and there's a long description of that opera and I was like you know if I went back and reread Antigone right now in the way I should as a dutiful post-college student I don't think I would understand why we are suddenly in the world of Antigone yeah. Yeah, and I mean she does do that. She drops in things from uh, Floriston and what's his um the opera, the Beethoven opera about the marriage and and she quotes uh Floriston singing What Darkness Here and there're just there's so many quotations. I felt like I was reading The Wasteland or something. It was just like <laughs> so we don't have a theory about what the performance of these quotations is except that she's just being smart and perhaps a little pretentious. There's no other end game. Yeah, or, you know, there there is a lot of mileage to be had in making your readers feel like they're smart, you know? Mm-hmm. Even if, uh, you know, I mean, you don't have to think about it that hard. You just go, oh, I know what that is. And then you congratulate yourself on your liberal arts education. <laughs> I guess I want to imagine there's a less cynical explanation for this, that if Lauren Groff was here, she would be able to draw us a diagram or give us some sense of why she picked each of these illusions, but it escaped me as I was reading, and it started to make me a little skeptical of the project. 
there's something in Antigone. I think that the thematic thread that she teases out, or that whoever is talking about Antigone teases out, is the laws of God versus the laws of man. And mm-hmm. I suppose there's a world in which, like, Lotto is operating according to the laws of humanity and Mathilde is aspiring to a sort of colder divine justice or something. I, I don't know. I like that, Katie. That's yeah, that I like sounds that a pretty lot. plausible That's to very me. Nice. Can we talk for just a moment about the character of Charlie? He is Gwen's brother, as I think we mentioned. And I did not understand his his importance throughout the book, although he's introduced to us in this kind of pretentious way. So you know you're supposed to keep an eye on him. He mostly seems like a kind of slightly loathsome sort of toad-like character. Mm. He's always described as very physically unattractive. And then all of a sudden at the end of the book, it turns out in some ways the whole plot is his revenge narrative. He's like the anti-knight who's going to bring down Lancelot by telling uh, Lotto that Matilde has had this long affair with um, Ariel, the weird gallery owner man you mentioned before, Another Shakespearean Mm -hmm. citation right there. Yeah, Yeah. good point. Although, again, like, to what end? Anyway, um, (laughs) I was very unprepared for this development in the plot. It seemed like Charlie was essentially lying because Mathilde's relationship with Ariel predates her marriage with Lotto. And yet it seems like Lotto dies, believing that Mathilde has been unfaithful to him in this very dramatic way. And she's never, she finds out Charlie has done this and she's never able to repair her marriage it's all very gothic i think or i don't know maybe greek drama is the way to think about it but i didn't feel like it was really developed adequately in the plot and i also just fundamentally it it just became a soap opera and then when you add on the part about her sleeping with lotto's erstwhile son it, the i i suddenly felt like i had landed in some place in which there were all of these kind of creaky pieces of machinery being manipulated. And I had no idea why, because I'd been perfectly happy reading this book when it seemed like it was a more prosaic book about a marriage. It's like a telenovela or something. And Charlie is so one-dimensional. I think actually all of the characters in this book are sort of fabular and archetypal to some extent, so they're all a little bit one-dimensional. But he's just such a kind of uninteresting villain to me. His sister is more interesting, but as we mentioned, she disappeared for most of the book until it's suddenly revealed that she's like the beating heart of it all. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm just going to finish complaining. I really liked a lot of things about this book, but I got super irritated as Matilde's section of the book became darker and more lemony snicket all the time. And, you know, first she's exiled from her nice rural French family for allegedly pushing her baby brother down the stairs, which maybe she did, didn't, maybe she didn't. It just seemed like such a terrible event, all of it. And then she goes through this, this series of being exiled. She's first sent to her grandmother in Paris, then to her horrible, incredibly cold-hearted uncle in, where are we? Rural Pennsylvania, I think. And she's orphaned to such a degree. She's so alone in the world. She acquires all this armor as a way of protecting herself. She gets into this um, 
you know, sexual relationship with this man, Ariel, so that he'll pay for her to go to Vassar. It's another very bleak part of her existence. And she doesn't talk about any of these things with Lotto. It's like this whole hidden part of her life. She's completely walled off. And yet, despite her isolation, she succeeds in walling him off from his mother. It all just started to feel to me like the feminine or female part of this book was so sad and was undercutting the kind of golden boy narrative of Lotto to such a degree that I didn't even believe it really anymore. Slate's Audio Book Club is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. I'm a big fan of The Great Courses. I love learning about so many things. That's why I'm excited about the new The Great Courses Plus video learning service, which provides unlimited access to thousands of fascinating subjects. The Great Courses Plus has nearly 5,000 video lectures in subjects like history, science, photography, and more. They are taught by award-winning professors and experts. With The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want at any time from anywhere. Audio Book Club listeners get a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, completely free for one month. I know you are going to love The Great Courses Plus, so sign up now to get your free one-month trial. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash ABC. This book has a really retrograde vision of gender. Yes. A sort of (laughs) classical one, actually, where sort of out in the forum with the columns and the sunshine and the laws, that's sort of like the realm of men. And then you go into the domestic sphere and there's kind of the crafty, wizened women uh, scheming and invoking the furies to, like, call down their spells upon unfaithful guys. Like, I just, I felt that there was a nastiness to everything that you could put in the feminine box in this book. And yeah, it's it a little misogynist. Me. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> Which is well, a weird thing to say about a, a very praised novel by a young, excellent female writer. But I did start feeling like it was kind of misogynist. Laura, what do you think? Well, I'm ambivalent about this novel as well, but I am going to sort of defend this aspect of it because to me, this is the part of the novel that feels very true. Before I say how true it is, I have to note that Charlie, <laughs> Charlie having nursed this vengeance for decades before he actually moves to get you know, his knife in, I found really preposterous. But I mean, so much of it was wild, like that you would send your child off to live with your mother who's a prostitute in Paris. And who puts the child in a closet. It just seemed crazy. But at any rate, to me, what the two parts of the novel do speak to is something that I feel like I've observed in life, which is that people tell themselves stories about how the world works, about the forces that determine what happens. And their belief in that really does shape what their experiences are. I mean, maybe not to the extent that it happens in this book, but It's been my experience that if you are desperately afraid that your children don't love you, you will behave in a way towards them that will cause them (laughs) to not want to be around you and act like they don't love you. And I feel like I see this around me all the time, the way that people decide that the world operates in a certain way, decide that they're a certain kind of person, and then they really begin to just create that kind of reality around them. And it sometimes can seem almost uncanny in the way that Matilde's life evolves into this crazy, gothic, wild soap opera. But 
there's also something that I kind of believe about that as well. I mean, that felt extreme, but not fundamentally untrue to me, because I feel that that is something that I've experienced. That's That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. Do you think that Lotto, though, also fabricates his own reality? Because he seems so passive. I guess we're meant to believe on some level that Matilda is the architect of both of their lives. But it's interesting to think that maybe something about Lotto's complacency and his willful blindness actually was just as powerful in shaping the narrative as Matilde's more active interventions. Well, don't you know people in your life who just seem so utterly helpless and they they can't do the most basic things for themselves, male and female, and somehow these people always manage to find somebody to come along and pick them up and whip their life into shape for them or at least make it sort Edit of functional. Edit their crappy plays into masterpieces. I'm waiting yeah. for that person to come along <laughs> in my life. I mean, when you when you described that, Katie, I thought, you know, he really is like a, a fairy tale character. The tailor who, you know, or Rapunzel or some character who falls asleep and then during the night the elves come and do all his or her work for him. Mm-hmm. And why do they do it? You know, often there isn't really any reason. That's a great point. We're supposed to believe that the reason Matilda does this is out of love, which is the sort of glaring inconsistency in the painting of her character. She does not seem to be an individual that's capable of love, at least in this very sort of wicked, lemony snicket, evil child portrayal we get early on. And yet it seems to be one of her defining characteristics, how much she loves Lotto and how broken she is by his death. What did you guys make of love in general in this book? She doesn't marry him for love, though. Hmm. She marries him for she his marries money. him she for security and money. Yeah, and then she falls in love with him, though. Or are we supposed to think that that's not true? I think it's true. I mean, I think it surprises her, and it's probably the one piece of good luck she has in her life is that she winds up loving this guy. Yeah, and yeah, I guess I also and I felt like the ambivalence in her love was believable that he had all these glowing positive attributes and she was drawn to his warmth. He's the only kind of warm person she ever really has. And yet at the same time she sees his weaknesses and she's frustrated by his narcissism and finds his professional success sort of hard to take even as she is quitting her own job to manage the business that his playwriting is bringing in. I mean, that was another interesting aspects of the gender relationships in this book, right? He's the outwardly successful person. She's the hidden kind of mouse-like editor creeping into his studio late at night. They don't seem to talk about the fact that she is significantly changing the work. And then everything is revolving around his success and her pursuits are gardening and going on 80 mile bike rides. Yeah, in a way she's sort of the artist who loves her own creation because she creates the lotto that is worthy of her. I mean, without her, he would be kind of a loser, I thought. Yeah. He goes into these periods of depression and can't leave his couch and gains a lot of weight and won't do anything. And and she's always sort of coaxing him back to life and making his plays dazzling as opposed to mediocre. And so I suppose one of the characteristics that we could assign to the sort of feminine energy in this book is creative and artistic. I don't know if maybe that's too reductive. 
No, that seems seems right to me. She's basically decided she wants to have a particular kind of life, and he is going to be the instrument of that. And even after she loves him, she's basically partly doing all of this so that she you know, to to meet that final goal. I mean, he's a failed actor, and she turns him into a successful playwright. He does provide the sort of seed of that, but she really is the womb that it grows in. Okay, but then there are these two other parts, which is, so he has this moment where he's giving a speech, or he's on a panel at some very prestigious book event with, like, other star playwrights, and he says something that's very demeaning toward her he kind of talks about her as this typical wife in a way that horrifies a lot of the women in the audience you're supposed to think he's kind of stepped into it and alienated all the feminists right yeah and made her mad as well and made her mad as well and it doesn't seem like she is so much at peace at that and then there's also a long set piece in the book in which he goes off to write this opera at a writer's retreat and he has basically a kind of affair with a much younger man who's composing the music and while they never actually have sex I don't think Lotto becomes besotted with this younger boy and he essentially leaves Matilde for this this love interest for a period of time and she's absolutely furious about the whole thing and then when the younger man whose name is Leo goes home to his rather implausible completely isolated little hamlet somewhere in Canada and drowns (laughs) Then Matilde leaves out the newspaper clipping about Leo's death by drowning for Lotto to find and stands at the top of the stairs kind of giving him the gimlet eye. I mean, that really was, I'm not sure which Greek myth we are in at that moment, but you can imagine like Athena or Hera or Aphrodite, any of those goddesses standing in there at that moment. Stay away from my man. Yeah, it's he has a creative partnership with Matilde that's sort of barely acknowledged or not really acknowledged. And probably one of the reasons why she's so mad at him when he gives this talk is that she's maybe some part of her is thinking, well, he we don't really talk about it, but he knows that I'm really his partner in this. And so then he goes into this relationship that's an acknowledged partnership, and it's a failure. Yeah. Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Um, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. One thing that was also kind of interesting to me about the Matilde Lotto relationship is it's almost as if he is her muse. So that's flipping the gender script a little bit. Normally you have the male artist who's invoking the female muse, but he is sort of her inspiration to do all the behind-the-scenes creative work that she does. That's very true. Yeah, as Emily said, he's her creation. Yeah. I mean, are we supposed to think that 
she's channeled all her energy into him and her kind of force field and then he's just like translating it into the world but it's really a credit to her there are a bunch of things with Matilde that just didn't quite scan for me like going to Thailand we should say that while Lotto is conducting this maybe affair maybe not with Leo she feels terrible and she does this impulsive vacation for a few days to Thailand it was presented as this grand secret that said so much about her and it to me I was just thinking why why is this included maybe to show that she is as dependent on him as she mm. believes he is mm. dependent on her I mean she goes and then she can't she you know she can't she doesn't really have her own existence anymore yeah. Should we talk a little bit about the writing style here? Uh, these kind of short fragments, very, very lyrical, very imagistic. Did you find that they drew you in and kept you reading, or were you sometimes exasperated by the floridity? I had both reactions. I really liked the writing in it. I think that the writing kept me going much longer than other elements of the book. Once I started the Matilde section, I got um, <laughs> less and less happy, basically, as it went along. But the writing, I thought the voice was very original. I Even when it seemed a little, like maybe she was going a little bit far, I was, I was impressed and interested in her modes of expression. They were unexpected in a way I really appreciated. I appreciated the shorter sentences because this style of highly figurative writing usually comes with a lot of complex clause heavy sentences so the shorter sentences as any thriller writer knows can give a sense of narrative momentum but i was annoyed and distracted by the constant reaching for weird metaphors and in fact when i wrote <laughs> my piece about it i wrote my piece about it for slate I worked from the galleys, which are these advanced, uncorrected proofs that reviewers get. And my review cites a few of these metaphors that I don't like. And and, oh. and one of them was actually removed between the, the galley and the final thing. And it was, it was the old lady who lives upstairs from Matilde and Lotto who has this point where she remembers her love with her husband and she says the first time they were together it was like biting into a crisp peach and I remember like reading it like going what no one wants to bite into a crisp peach <laughs> a crisp peach is unripe and and I was like this is just ridiculous um so that was removed and I thought well why a crisp peach? Like, why would anybody say that? And I thought, well, because a ripe peach is a cliche. And so crisp peach Oh, but there's a ripe peach, peach a... in here, too. Is there? <laughs> what? Yeah, I was just looking through the book for other sentences while you were talking. And, um, and you found a ripe American... peach? Yeah, an American man bursting out of his T-shirt, his head fuzzy like a ripe peach. Beside him, a plump and laughing Thai woman. This is when she Okay, so it. let no one say that Lauren Groff gives short shrift to the various stages of ripeness in Peachdom. That is well covered in this novel. <laughs> or it was in the galley. I do have to quote this other metaphor that I just think is somehow embodies the aspect of this writing that, that irritates me. Hot milk of a world with its skin of morning fog in the window. And I just read that and I thought, you know, <laughs> what? <laughs> what a weird kind of gross, not persuasive 
metaphor that is. And it just seemed like she's just straining after this sort of novelty in, in the metaphors. And, and I you would kind of go through the book sort of crossing them out going, we don't need this. We don't need that. Um, but I don't know. Maybe other people feel differently. No, I think you're right about that. I think what pulled me in about the reading is more when the fragmentary sentences feel like very sharp observations. And so I loved the bracketed voice of the fates and the furies. I'm going with your interpretation, Laura. Without that, I think the book would be stripped of its, if it has any sense of fun, it's in those passages. And then also the way they give you a little bit of critical distance from the fable-like nature of the story. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Um, maybe there's kind of a hunger for that omniscient third-person narrator. As a big Trollope fan, I'm always sort of hoping mm. that we're going to get that kind of witty, ironic third-person omniscient narrator to come in and talk about the characters and whether they act like a hero really should act. And, you know, I, I love that sort of thing, but it did go seriously out of style when modernism came along. Okay, up-and-coming fiction writers, we <laughs> want more Trollope and omniscient <laughs> narrator. I'm with yeah. you on that one. Yeah, it would be lovely if someone could swoop in to set the record straight. I was very, I liked this book a lot. I thought it was really pleasurable to dive into, um, like very engrossing, very immersive. But I was so puzzled by a lot of the scenes, especially the play-like scenes in Lotto's section where it would be, you know, Dean, colon, line of dialogue, Ollie, colon, line of dialogue. And I couldn't tell whether the, these were actually excerpts from Lotto's plays or just written as in the style of a play, things that were happening in Lotto's life. It was all very ambitious and interesting and inventive, but I just, I did spend a lot of the novel puzzling to myself what was actually happening. I feel like we have a a crisis of faith about this novel. Like it's doing all kinds of interesting things, but we're not really sure that there's a good reason to do them. What it adds up to. Yeah. Right. I think that's right. One more thing I did like about it, though, the scenes in their first apartment when they've just moved to New York and their friends who've also just graduated from college and everyone's a little bit lost and they're getting together for sort of potluck dinners with candles that burn all the way down. I felt like I was reading an update of um, Mary McCarthy's The Group, and I yeah. enjoyed that part. Yeah, that was a great part. And the the descriptions of the art gallery, you know, I mean, like some of, some of the sort of social manners, observations, you know, the little scenes, how people interact were very smart and well noted. That's true. And with Lotto's family, Rachel and her wife or girlfriend. Yeah. I like that character. Yeah. I wish there had been a little bit more of her. I know, but it, the mother character, I kept imagining mm. being that octopus <laughs> sorceress from <laughs> Ursula. Yes, because she's like 400 <laughs> yeah. pounds by the middle of the book. I know, with this crazy, like divine or something, with this crazy drag queen voice and, you know, uh, the Tennessee Williams manner just is so crazy. And so Rachel, this character, seems just sort of normal and kind of intriguing, you know, when she brings the money to them, you know. I mean, just this really endearing younger sibling character. She sort of lives with this cartoon. So did any of you, Laura, did you read uh, Lauren Groff's previous book? Yes, and her previous book is called Arcadia, and it's basically the narrative of a of a young man who grows up in a 
a sort of a, basically a commune, but instead of it taking place during the 70s, it it really goes right up until the moment that the novel was published and then a little beyond. So it's like slightly science fictional and it sort of deals with the sort of falling apart of advanced capitalist society and civilization from the viewpoint of this person who was basically raised in a sort of back to the land rural commune. And I thought it was really accomplished. I, I had difficulty with her first book, and Arcadia, I thought, worked on on pretty much every level. And so I was very excited to read Fates and Furies as a result of that. And while I did find many things that I liked about Fates and Furies, and I, I admired the intelligence behind what I think she's trying to do with the structure and the way the that the two characters, how they see their world shapes their world, there were so many frustrating things about it. And so it was a little bit of a disappointment, this book. But I am I still have my fingers crossed for the next one because anybody who can write Arcadia once could obviously write something as good again. Emily, what did you think of Fates and Furies? I would recommend it with reservations. Like you, Katie, I was basically, at least for the first, say, half to two-thirds, I was enjoying reading it. And then even when I was frustrated and started tussling with it, I was still interested. So while I do think we've done a good job of talking about the parts of the book that didn't work, it really does also have a number of things going for it. So I guess I have a kind of mixed verdict in the end. I agree with that completely. Circe, the sorceress, is a figure who shows up and I do feel to some extent like this book is especially, I hate when reviewers call books spellbinding, but it does kind of cast a spell and makes more of its materials than you would expect. Or maybe it just, there's more here that's harder to explain and it has a bit of magic to it, I think. That's very true. Yeah, I agree. It has a certain kind of quality that engages you even if you can't really explain why. And sometimes it's a little bit like Murakami in that respect. Like you don't really hmm. know why you're so caught up in you're it. responding the way you are. Yeah. It's kind of a mystery. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. 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 That's true. And I think some of it is sort of like the elemental themes. We're talking about destiny and will and fate yeah. and male and female, these archetypal forces, whether or not they're true or real. Thank you guys so much for talking about this book with me. It's been great fun. Thank you. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers, and the managing producer is Laura Mayer. For Laura Miller and Emily Bazelon, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening.